Good morning, Grace Church. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of us. In front of you, you can keep it if you'd like. Today I am preaching Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31, how nothing can conquer us because God is for us. How we are loved and kept by God forever because God is for us. How because God is for us, no opponent will prevail. How we are loved forever by God. He is for us. It's the most amazing of truth. It's soul-strengthening truth. And it keeps you secure in everything. I want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read verses 31 to 39. Romans 8. We'll begin at verse 31. Go to verse 39. This is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we thank you for these magnificent truths. Lord, we pray that you would sink these truths deep into our souls. Maybe we've heard them hundreds of times. Maybe even we've become desensitized to, to their significance. Lord, I pray by your Spirit, through your Word, that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have a seat. There were two great men who stood side by side in the early Reformation days. One was the well-known Martin Luther. The other, lesser-known, Philip Melanchthon. And Luther once said this, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing the wild forests. But Master Philip comes along softly and gently, sowing and watering with joy, according to the gifts which God has abundantly bestowed upon him. And the question you might want to ask is, where did Philip Melanchthon get his quiet strength? What made this gentle man stand with Luther against the world? 
The answer is Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Melanchthon quoted this more than any other Bible verse. It still hangs in his study wall in Wittenberg where visitors can see. When he was dying, he asked for his, his traveling bed to be brought and to be placed on that little traveling bed in his study because that's where he was most content. And the pastor read him Romans 8.31. And when the pastor read that verse, Melanchthon said, read those words again. And the pastor read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Melanchthon said, that's it, that's it. Because it was the greatest of comfort to him. In the darkest hours of his life, he's, he's being threatened by death. He comforts himself again by reciting, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8 is dealing with amazing soul-anchoring truth. It's about sovereign security. It's about absolute assurance in Christ. And it gives us a, a cross-centered view of life. It gives us a Christ-centered view of life. It gives us a spirit-given assurance of our security in Christ that cannot move. I, I don't know if you're doubting or if you doubt very often how secure you might be in Christ. You might have even gone through times in your life where you were so convinced and now you've kind of been pushed off balance and you've lost your equilibrium and even now when you can look back and remember when you were so convinced, even now you might be, you might be doubting, you might be wondering, am I really secure in Christ or am I really even saved? Romans 8, 28 Looking back at that verse, it gives us the, the secret, really, of our security, uh, of our full and final deliverance and salvation in Christ. And, and it's about that. It's not about getting what you want today. Well, hey, God's going to work all things together for good for me. All things are going to work out for me today in my life. Everything on my schedule is going to happen the way I want it to. That is not Romans 8.28. We would be sadly mistaken if we are going there and pushing that meaning into that verse. Romans 8.28 says that all things will work for the eternal good for those who are in Christ, for those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And we moved on into verses 29 and 30, and it really gave us the sequence of our security in Christ. Verse 29 says, those whom God foreknew he he decided to set his covenant love upon us in a saving way that he also predestined to adoption as sons predestined to be conformed to the image of christ and chosen for his sovereign saving purposes god's decision beforehand to save those whom he foreknew and also he called us in real time at the right time of his choosing by the outward proclamation of the gospel, and by the inward drawing of God. This is talking about God's sovereign work in history where he calls people to himself. He calls some to himself. Those whom he called, he justified. There's God's saving activity on behalf of those who he chose, and they are made right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorifies. 
And it was in the past tense, glorified as good as done. Verse 30 says, our final glorification is secure, spoken of in the past tense. So you can see how certain this is. So I think when you get to verse 31, I think actually when you finish reading verse 30, you might be tempted to say, what else could be said? What more is there to be said? It has all been said. It would be easy to think that. I think it would be very easy to think that. But there is more to be said. We, and, and we in our lives, we fall in sin. We, we face the pressures of life. And we keep finding again and again and again that the only remedy is knowing the unbreakable love of God in Christ. That's what we're going to see in, in the rest of this chapter. It's all because of God's great love. Those in Christ are loved forever. His great love with which he loved us. And so this continues the theme of absolute security, absolute assurance, with a string of, of faith-strengthening questions. Really questions designed to build really to a crescendo of praise to God in those last two verses. And then there's a series of rhetorical questions. And what Paul is doing, really, in verses 31 to 39 is, is answering, really considering any objections to the assertion that God's grace in Christ guarantees your glorification. You could say that verses 31 to 39 give us the song of our security. It's an almost poetic you know, burst of praise to God and as these questions are being answered. And, and you reach here a high point in Scripture. You know, we say Romans is on the, you know, the Romans 8 is on the, uh, on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, Bible chapters. And you see what a, what, a, what, a, uh, what, a high, what a high tower Romans 8 is. Well, you could really say that this is a, a towering, majestic peak that we have come to in, in these last verses in this chapter. One person said, nowhere in sacred literature do we find anything matching the power and the beauty of this remarkable paean of praise. Someone else said it transcends almost everything in language. So there's this almost poetic crescendo building, and it's Christ-centered. It's, it's assurance building. You know, it bolsters your soul. It gives you, it gives you hope. It's a declaration of our security. In the form of these questions and answers. And there's this, it just induces high praise to God. God's saving activities are, are being put on full display. And, and his presence is being celebrated. His, his power is being celebrated. And, and his, his promises, they're, they're just on full display here. It just, it's like if you want to sum up everything in Romans so far, if you want to sum up everything in the Bible, just keep it right here into, into Romans 8, 31 to 39. Because it celebrates the fact that God's not going to lose any whom he has chosen to set his love upon in a saving way. He has done everything necessary to save you forever if you are in Christ. If you love Jesus and you're not trusting in your own works, and you know the Lord and you're trusting the gospel message, nothing can separate you from his love. And, and if you really, if you roll through these verses, you, you see this in verse 31, there won't be any victorious opponent over you. 
Verse 32, no accusation against you will stick in God's court. In verses 33 and 34, there will be no condemnation of God's beloved. We see this in verse 1. That was the, the start of Romans 8. And then you see in the last verses, 35 to 39, there will be no separation. So the, a chapter that starts with no condemnation ends with no separation. We, it even says we are, we are super conquerors through him who loved us. Literally, we are winning the most glorious victory. We're in the process of winning the most glorious victory, and it's a blowout victory. You know, like when your team like totally demolishes the other team? My favorite team has not been doing that this year. But a blowout victory because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of the exaltation of Christ. And so today, we're focusing our, our, we're really centering our focus on verse 31. We're just going to look at verse 31 today. In, in coming weeks, we'll look at the rest of these verses. But we're going to look at verse 31 because I'll put it this way. If you are looking for confidence-building assurance, this is your verse. This is your verse. It's, it's, it's huge. It was John Calvin's life verse, Romans 8.31. And, and the logic of it, I mean, just, just, just the sheer logic of the text literally applied, leads you literally to the upper limits of confidence in God. Okay, you don't become more confident in yourself. You become less confident in yourself. But you become more confident in God, who he is, what he does, what he promises, what he brings about, and what he is bringing about. Because you're sitting here today, near the end of 2018, and you might be thinking to yourself, so how is this going to work out? How are we going to get? To, okay, so I know we're winning, and I know we're going to win, and I know it's all going to work out. But how exactly is this going to play out? There's a, a basketball game that I could watch 100 times. I've probably watched it five or 10 when Kobe scored 81. And I remember the first time I saw it, I'm like, this is amazing. But then when I rewatched it, I'm like, so how did he get to it? It's almost, it's still, you know, you get into the third quarter, the fourth quarter, you get into the middle of the fourth quarter, and you're like, how's he going to get to 81? So I understand how we can all be thinking, how's, how's this going to get there? Yeah, I get it. I see what the Bible says. I know how the story ends. But how is it really going, how's it really going to play out? How, how's this going to work? It just, the math isn't working for me. Verse 31 says, since God is for you, no one will be successfully against you. God is for believers, okay? This is about believers. Therefore, no opponent will prevail because he's got his sovereign security system locked in on you. And it's, it's, it's really phrased like this. God is for you. Okay? God is for you in Christ. What did he do? Christ died for us. God is for us because Christ died for us. So those in Christ are loved and kept forever by God. No one's going to prevail against us because of him. I think this is very important to emphasize. Why would this be very important to emphasize in 2018? Why, why would this be so important to emphasize? It's because we're, we live in a time of a lot of false teaching about the gospel. And a lot of unclear conversions. People are basically going, I'm a Christian because I said yes to Jesus, but nothing was explained to them about Jesus and who he is and what he does. 
like the, the gospel presentation that they thought they received was divorced from the Bible. There's a lot of unclear conversions, and there's a lot of lack of assurance of salvation among people who profess to be believers. There, there's major confusion about what it means to be a Christian and to grow in Christ. Not to mention all the people we know who are so lost, who are completely lost and without God and without hope and without direction of all ages. Let me tell you what Romans 8.31 contains, and then we'll go through it. I'll give you three points, okay? First, this verse gives us a panoramic announcement of God's saving acts. Okay, a panoramic announcement of God's saving acts. And don't worry about writing all these down if you want. You can just do it when we get there. But the second is the, the personal assurance of God's saving acts. And then third, the promised application of God's saving acts. This is what we see in this verse. And we'll look first at this panoramic announcement of God's saving acts. This is how 31 opens. It opens with a rhetorical question, what then shall we say to these things? Okay, what then shall we say to these things? So Paul is standing on the summit. Okay, we're talking about this summit, and he's looking back across the entire landscape. You know, you're on a summit where you can see all the way around. And, and he's looking along the entire, across the entire landscape, and you literally get this panorama view. A panorama view. It begins, what then? Literally, what therefore? It's a word for therefore. Based on everything that's gone before, what shall we say? What response? What claim shall we make? What declaration? To these things, literally this, this body of truth, this case that's been laid out, what are the things? It's all of Romans so far. It takes you back immediately to verse 30. It's talking about how those he justified, he glorified, which sums up all of Romans so far. So you have this first look, this panorama view to start with of God's you know, super magnetic love that just draws those he has chosen to himself. This panorama view and this amazing soul-stirring truth. When you think of these things, you go, these things. So let's, let's recount these things. Again, to take you right back to verse 30, the last part of it, those he justified, he also glorified. It echoes back to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a summing up of everything in this question. How God sent his son to absorb the punishment we deserve, that if we put our faith in him and don't trust in ourselves, we'll be saved from God's wrath. That's the these things. That's the these things. Think about what Romans is all about. It's about God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ. And so we've been getting gospel truth all the way through and how gospel truth changes hearts. You look back at the beginning of Romans and it's all about believing this gospel and how sinful we are, how needed the gospel is and how God has provided eternal life in Christ for all who believe. So it started with the universal sinfulness of man and then God's righteousness being revealed in the gospel, the free gift of justification, basically our inability, God's action on our behalf, how God condemns sin, condemning Christ in our place, and we moved on in, into chapter 5, and it was about 
resting in this gospel truth about how we, we were linked with Adam, we are, in, in sin and death, but we're now linked with Christ in life and righteousness. How we have peace with God, we have access to God, we, we have the hope of glory, even as we suffer, we have God's love, we have God's assurance. Romans 6 talks about our unitedness with Christ. We're united with him in death and new life and how there's this progressive change that God is bringing about in those who believe. And of course you get to Romans 7 and you get the the conflict and, you know, I do what I hate. I can't do the good I want to do. I'm captive. I'm wretched. But Jesus delivers. The answer always comes back. Jesus delivers. So there's growth, there's struggles, but we know there is ultimate victory. And so when we get to Romans 8, when we get to Romans 8, 1, this, this irrevocable, eternity-altering statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, it launches us into, really, a, a look at some questions we all ask. If I'm uncondemned, what's true about me? Jesus died for me. I've been freed from slavery to sin. I, I can now obey God. It's life-changing stuff. My sanctification has been set in motion. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but it's going to get completed. And we talk about, we think like this, we think, but, but what, what about the change? Like, what kind of change is happening in my life? How does faith in Christ lead to change in my life? And we find out in Romans 8, it's lifelong life changed by the Spirit of God. So focused on the Spirit of God, the power of the third person of the Trinity. Our minds are to be set on the Spirit. We're, we're to have We have spiritual life and we have friendship with God and so we're to yield ourselves to God and his word and want to please him. As the spirit of life, as the spirit of adoption, as the spirit of glory works in and through us and changes us, empowers us to slay sin. And then you get to the last half of Romans 8 and all the way to where we are now and it's how do I know if I really have eternal life? Unless you think it's too elementary. Just think about your life in the last week or the last month or the last year or so. And how much you ebb and flow in your thoughts. And how much you leak in terms of the good gospel truth that that we hold dear. But is is not of our making. Controlled by the Spirit of God. We're crying out to God with, with the depths of our heart. We're confident in Christ. We, we learned early on there that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Christ. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, here's the witness that he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So you could really say that verse 31 summarizes the gospel. That summarizes the gospel that the God loves his chosen people and will protect them from all enemies and one day will give them eternal life and a restored creation. It's absolute proof of God's commitment to his people. That's why Melanchthon could hold that verse on his deathbed. And it's all due to the death of Christ on our behalf and the present reign of Christ. We're remembering the death of Christ today. We're remembering the resurrection of Christ today when we come to the table later. The death and resurrection and ascension and, and, and present reigning of Christ mean that however difficult life can get here on earth, we're always the objects of God's loving care. 
And so these things, these things in Romans 8.31 really, really survey the entire landscape of the argument from chapter 1 onward. And, and basically says this, what conclusion would you draw from this? You have the panorama view. What conclusion do you draw from this huge sweeping view flooded with God's grace? And the answer is overwhelmingly obvious. See, the panoramic announcement is God's saving acts are in full effect. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say? God is for us. No one's against us. It leads to the second part of this verse, really personal assurance of God's saving acts. Very personal assurance of God's saving acts. From this argument, what, what shall we say to these things, this panorama view well, now you have another rhetorical question. If God is for us, who's against us? If God is for us. Now, in the word if, if I use the word if today, there might be some doubt. But when the Bible uses the word if here, there is no doubt. It in, if introduces circumstances that are necessary for a given proposition to be true. So the Greek is better translated, since God is for us, or because God is for us. God is for us in all these salvation things. These things. So put your mind back on verse 30, justification and glorification. For us, the death of Christ in our behalf. So God is for us. Sums up all of Romans. God is for us. Key word for. For. Not against. So these are juxtaposed here, right? For us and against us. There's a conflict. And by the way, the conflict that we experience... We will, only, we will only win if we have help from the outside. We have nothing to stand on if we, if we trust in ourselves. This conflict has been present. We've seen it throughout the book of Romans. You see the conflict of us fighting against God with all our might. You see a conflict between life and death and sin and righteousness and the flesh and the, and the, and the spirit and the will to please God. And in all of this, God's people are being, uh, are being led into a victory because God is on our side. You know, he's emphatically taken up our cause. He's merciful to our plight. God has taken our side, literally. He has put us on his side. God takes sides. Now, it's easy to know if God is for you. Do you love Jesus? Do you trust Jesus and not yourself? Do you trust what Jesus has done and not what you can do? And so you answer that question, and you go, wow, I'm safe and secure in Christ no matter what, no matter the world wars and fires and cataclysmic events, no matter any of that, world-shattering devastation, personal upheaval, nothing can conquer us if God is for us. And so what it brings us to really is a, an unopposed confidence in God's love. An unopposed confidence in God's greatness. God is for us. <laughs> All of Romans summed up right there in that phrase. God is for us. We hang on to that truth. But let's state the obvious. We do have people against us. We do have things against us. They just cannot prevail against us. So what you have to believe in every battle that comes your way. No enemy will prevail. 
This means more than, you know, hey, God is graciously disposed towards you. He might help you out. He is for you in all he does. He is working for you. Remember, he's in the midst of sanctifying you. He's going to glorify you. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He brought you to faith. He's going to take you all the way through. God is for us. And you notice it's personal. It's us, the church, his bride, his beloved. I used to run a lot of races. I used to run a lot of, you know, cross-country type races. And, um, and in a, in a track race especially, and in cross-country races too. I've always wanted to do this. This is always my goal in every race. Jump out to a lead, keep it, and win the race. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? And actually, I can look back in my faded glory and, and see, and there were some races like that. I, start, I started in front, I st- kept the lead, and I had a huge kick at the end. You can just imagine a guy with a fro running with, I won't tell you what kind of uniform, it's back in the 70s, so it's not as baggy of clothes as, the, as we wear now. This text tells us no matter what it looks like, you're winning the race. Uh, you will win the race in Christ. And it's not because you're strong. It's not because you have a good kick. It's because you have the God of the universe on your side. No one can defeat the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe. Here's how Spurgeon put it. He is for us, let me say, with all the, infinite, the infinity of his heart, with all the omnipotence of his love, with, for, for us with all his boundless wisdom arrayed in all the attributes which make him God. He is for us, eternally and immutably for us. So we have personal assurance. So you've got the panoramic announcement, but then you've got laid next to it the personal assurance of God's saving acts. God is for us. And then, a promised application of it. It's going to keep getting applied to you. God's going to continue it. And the reason, it, it, it comes in this last phrase, who is against us? Okay, so God is for you. But not in the vacuum. God is for you in the midst of many enemies. To your soul. So this is the challenge to all doubters. No one's on par with God. And you look at the two prepositions, for and against. Literally, for means over. God is over us. We're under him. We're kept by him. He's carrying us. He's got us. No matter what comes down on you, no matter what comes against you. The last part of this verse, who can be against us? The answer's easy. Give it to me. What's the answer? No one. That's it. No one. And so says Paul, the man with many enemies, <laughs> people chasing him down to try to kill him. That's the guy who said this. And we often think people are against us, right? We often think that. We think, well, the world's against me, you know, and, and uh, we even sometimes think God's against us. You know, God, why are you doing this to me? And we just get so warped in our thinking. But we do have all sorts of enemies. Sin, and decay, and death. And shame, enemies, with stresses, finances, anxiety, grief, sorrow, 
relationships, health, persecution. The list goes on. And God has acted powerfully against these forces so that your salvation in Christ is secure. They cannot prevail against you. They may win little scrimmages, little skirmishes, little battles, but they will not win the war. Your soul is secure. Unless, of course, God is against you. We haven't thought about that. Unless God is against you. Unless he is literally against you. If you refuse to believe the gospel, God is not for you. If if you're sitting here today, you're listening to the sermon, you're like, "Uh -uh, I'm good. And you say, I don't need Jesus. What is true about you is that God is against you and that you are under the stored up, stored up, universe-shaking, soul-terrifying wrath of God. Spurgeon put it this way. There is an opposite to this. It belongs to some who are here. If God be against you, who can be for you? If you are an enemy to God, your very blessings are curses for you. Your pleasures are only the prelude to your pains. Whether you have adversity or prosperity, so long as God is against you, you can never truly prosper. Take a half an hour this afternoon to think this over. That's from Spurgeon and me. Think about it for a half an hour today. If God is against me, what then? What will become of me in time and eternity? How shall I die? How shall I face him in the day of judgment? The ones that will shrink in shame at his appearing are not those that you know, didn't live spiritually enough as believers or didn't win enough people to Christ or didn't do enough. The ones who will shrink in shame at God's appearing are the ones who reject Christ. So I would just say to you, if that's you today, come to Christ now. Believe the gospel message that you have heard. That he died for your sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He's ascended to the Father and he will return. And he will return with judgment and wrath for those who refuse to believe and life eternal for those who believe. If God has done everything from foreknowledge to glorification for for us, then all adversaries are powerless. Who's against us? Doesn't mean you don't have enemies. You look at the rest of the chapter. (laughs) We'll get into that. What it means is however strong the enemies are, God is stronger. This is what prompted David to ask a question about Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. The only kind of person that would say something like that is someone who would say, the Lord is on my side. Psalm 118, verse 6 and 7. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side, is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Or Isaiah 50, verse 9. Behold, the Lord helps me who will who will declare me guilty behold all of them will weigh out like a garment the moth will eat them up isaiah 54:17 no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. There's a very obvious implication here. If someone could rob you of your salvation, they have to be stronger than God. And there's no one stronger than God. So the emphatic no one stands. How do you live? How do you live then? How do you live your life when there is a lot against you, but you know the final, the final score? Maybe you feel beat down. Maybe you feel no hope. Maybe you feel depressed or struggling. Maybe you're struggling with insecurity. Your minds manufacture people against you. What did they say about me? What, what did they mean? You're so easily offended and hurt. There's too much of you and less of Christ in your mix. You need more of Christ. Maybe you're immature. You know, we're often our own worst enemy, our own worst opponent. We don't hunger and thirst for the word of God. We hear the word, but we don't do it obediently. We've got, you know, wonky relationships with other Christians. We compare, we judge. Maybe it's just inconsistency on your part. You just go, I'm complacent. I'm indifferent. I'm not really caring right now. You've got to ground yourself in reality. There's no truer reality than what is found in God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word, and especially this verse in Romans 8. It always comes back to your identity in Christ. Who are you in Christ? Remind yourself. And remind yourself that he is for your eternity. He is not for your immaturity. He is not for your unkindness. He is not for your bitterness. He is not for your unrepentant sin. He is not for your anger. He is not for your selfishness. He is for your identity now as you serve Christ. He is for your purity. He is for your worship. He is for your obedience. He is for your humility. He is for your broken and contrite heart. He is for you depending on him in everything. He is for you to cling to the cross of Christ and not the trappings of the world. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He is for your perseverance. He is for you to humble yourself under his mighty hand that he may exalt you at the proper time at glorification because he will never leave you or forsake you. In him we live and move and have our being. And so life goes better, life falls into place when we realize our entire life is his. We belong to Christ, we're instruments of his grace. I just want to quickly, before we close, share with you how, how I personally process this. I think the thing I do the most is remind myself that God is with me. Remind myself of his presence. I remember Exodus 33, 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I remember going to an interview in 1985 that I was very nervous about and I just kept repeating that verse over and over again. I remember in 1999 battling a fear of flying and saying I, on, a, on a flight saying Isaiah 41:10 over and over again, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I, I, I remind myself of not just his presence, but his power. And then I just focus on verses I've learned. I, I, I focus on the promises of God. I think of Psalm 23. I think of Psalm 100. Those are the two passages of Scripture I probably memorized the earliest as a, belie- as a new believer. And I, just, I can recite those every day. I just keep going back to those. But what, we, what do we do? We look for spiritual palliatives. You know, we look for instant relief. We, it's not a bad thing to look for the relief, but get to the root of it. You know, read the Psalms. I've been reading the Psalms the last few days, and I'll tell you what, just read through the Psalms. You see how God ministers to a sinking soul. Just think on these things. 
Uh, let me conclude with this. Um, I know our hearts are weak, and I know that we are prone uh, to legalism, we're prone to unbelief, and we sometimes receive these words with a lot of difficulty. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I just want to say this, it's, it's true, and pray to believe it. Pray to believe it. It's astonishing, never-ending truth. It's a promise. God is not against you. You shouldn't be against you. Satan's lies and schemes won't prevail against you. You've got this panoramic announcement of God's saving acts. You've got the personal assurance. You've got the promised application. God is going to continue to save you. God is for you. Be pu- fully persuaded of it. I, I remember a story of, of Chrysostom early on in the, in the church. He was brought before the Roman emperor. And he was threatened with banishment unless he says he's not a Christian anymore. And Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me. This world is my father's house. So the emperor says, well, I'll kill you. And he says, no, you can't. My life is hid with Christ in God. He says, I'm going to take away your treasures. He says, you can't. My treasure is in heaven. My heart is there. The emperor says, I'm going to drive you away from mankind. You'll have no friends left. And he says, you can't do that. I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. And then he said, I defy you. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. Lord, thank you that only the one who can say, Lord, you are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Lord, you are the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Only the one who can say that can stand strong in the midst of the fire, of the storm. And Lord, we just want to acknowledge once again how great you are and how you have foreknown us and predestined us and justified us and glorified us, even as good as done because you keep your promises. And I pray, Lord, that you, even now as we've contemplated these truths, that you would set us free to persevere, set us free to serve your purposes today and every day you grant us by your grace your name would be praised in our hearts, in our homes, in your household, and by the nations to the ends of the earth. All for your glory in Christ's name.